we're going to read some scripture. This is Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28, and a rather familiar passage. Let's, uh, you follow along as I, I read. Uh, then the mother of Zebedee's sons uh, came to Jesus with her sons, James and John, kneeling down, asking a favor of him. What is it you want? Jesus asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. And Jesus called them together. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's let's pray together. Lord, thank you that uh, you are our rock. You are our shelter in a time of storm. Lord, thank you that we can turn to you 24-7. You never sleep, you never slumber. You're always there um, to be our helper, to be our rock and fortress. And we thank you for that this morning. Lord, we thank you for uh, this season that we're entering into of uh, beginning to think about um, the cross and beginning to think about the resurrection and what you've done for us. And so, Lord, we pray that as we again look into your word, that you would open up our hearts and minds to what you have for us today. Lord, may we not just be hearers of the word, but Lord, may we uh, put into practice what we hear today, and may our lives be changed. So would you um, reveal your truth to us through your Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, and we'll give you the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're looking at Journey with Jesus. So we're thinking, what was the last week of Jesus' life like? And so we've delved into, really, the Gospel of John, and it's interesting, John has 21 chapters, almost half of the whole book. It's about the last week of Jesus' life. And so we started out really in John chapter 11 where Jesus performs a miracle. And it was really the miracle that would turn the religious leaders totally against Jesus. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the religious leaders say, and he was drawing lots of crowds, a big following, uh, we need to do something here. And they began to plot to take the, the life of Jesus. And so Jesus and his disciples, after the, the resurrection of Lazarus, the, the Bible says they went up to a town called Ephraim, about 20 miles north. And they stayed in Ephraim. Now, if Jesus' life was all about protecting and preserving his own life, he would have stayed there. But that wasn't the purpose and the plan of Jesus. He came as, what, to to seek and to save the lost. He knew what his mission was. And so a few weeks later, he comes down with his disciples from Ephraim back to Bethany, which is right next to Jerusalem. And that would have taken some courage to do that, because that's where the religious leaders were looking to take Jesus out. He came for a party. 
party that was given in his honor by Simon the leper. Perhaps it was a party to thank Jesus for healing him. We don't, we don't know. But here's Jesus. He's in Bethany. And it's Saturday, this a week before the crucifixion. And that party and celebration is going on. And then all of a sudden, a dramatic event happens. We read that, read that Mary took this perfume, this very costly perfume we discovered that was imported from India. And later on in the passage, we discovered it was worth a whole year's salary, 12 ounces of perfume, and she breaks it, and she anoints the feet of Jesus and washes Jesus' feet with her hair. And the text says that Judas was upset, but the other parallel texts also let us know that the rest of the disciples were upset. What a waste! Why wasn't this sold and given to the poor? And Jesus said, leave her alone. Uh, she's done this as an act of worship. And we talked about costly worship. And true worship is costly worship. Well, that was Saturday. Then last week we looked at Sunday. And uh, the very next day we discover this is Palm Sunday. And Jesus is riding a donkey into the uh, streets of Jerusalem. And it's Passover time, and so historians tell us that uh, Jerusalem's population would have swelled probably from uh, about 10 times what it normally would be. There was anywhere from 1 million to 2 million people now in the city of Jerusalem because they're all coming from all over to celebrate the Passover. And Jesus rides on a donkey into the city of Jerusalem in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. 500 years ago, the prophet Zechariah said, your king is going to enter the city on a donkey. And the crowds are are waving palm branches and they're taking their coats off and they're kind of making a, a, a red carpet with, out of their, with their coats and Jesus rides into the city and they're yelling, Hosanna, King Jesus, save us, save us. That's what Hosanna means. And Jesus comes and he weeps over the city of Jerusalem when he sees Jerusalem. And he's weeping over Jerusalem because they rejected him. He's weeping over Jerusalem because he also knows that in about 35 years, the Romans are going to come in and they're going to totally destroy the city of Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and literally kill hundreds of thousands of Jews. And Jesus is crying. Well, that brings us, and we're going to fast forward in the the timeline here, that brings us to Thursday, and we're going to jump into um, John 13, but we're going to get some background from Luke chapter 22. So if you want to follow along in your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 22. And now it's Thursday. We're 24 hours away from the cross and the crucifixion. And Luke begins to set the setting and the background for us. So let's look at the the setting uh, from Luke chapter 22. Uh, Judas has already made a deal to betray Jesus. Let's read about it. Luke 22, verse 1. Now the festival of unleavened bread was a week-long festival that culminated in Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. For they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. 
And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. And so, background setting, Judas has already made a backroom deal with the religious leaders to turn Jesus over to them. And we know from a parallel passage in Matthew uh, that he was paid 30 pieces of silver for that. That was the cost of a slave back then. If you wanted to buy a slave, 30 pieces of silver was the no going, going rate. And so the backdoor deal has already been made with Judas to betray Jesus, and now it's coming up on Passover time, and uh, Jesus then arranges an upper room to observe the Passover with his disciples, verses 7 through 13, Luke 22. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. Jesus replied, As you enter the city, Jerusalem, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. So, Judas has already made his back room deal, and now Jesus has arranged a room, a large room, it says an upper room, for him and his disciples to come together and to observe the Passover feast. This is probably, and when you go to Acts chapter 1, the same room where the disciples gathered after Jesus' ascension. And if you read carefully there, there are 120 of them, and they're in an upper room, and they're waiting and praying for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Very well could be the same room where Jesus and his disciples ate, ate this, uh, observed the, the Passover uh, celebration. Well, that brings us to John 13, and uh, we're going to look at uh, the next point in our outline is called the shocking evening. You ever gotten some news that just like took your breath away? That was just unexpected and totally shocking to you. Way back, maybe 35 years ago, a long time ago, we were at our first church assignment in Strongsville, Ohio. I remember getting a phone call from my older brother. And answered the phone, and he just gave a quick greeting, and then he said to me, he says, are you sitting down? <laughs> I'm like, that's a strange thing to ask, you know. We're like, why don't you sit down? And then he's like, i got some news to share with you. He wanted to say that that day, and I've told this story many times, my younger brother went into a, a business in Fort Wayne, Indiana, that was being held up. It was like 1.30 in the afternoon, and there was a gunman in there, and 
gunman asks my brother to put his wallet on the counter, and he does that. And there's a fellow working in the store. For some reason, the gunman opened fire. And there was a young man by the name of Michael Hamlin that was 19 years old that went into eternity, and then he turned the gun and shot my brother three times. And the Lord protected him because a couple inches over this way, got shot through the arm a couple times, uh, he would not be here today. And uh, he's, he's just telling me this shocking news. Well, this, uh, if you ever had that kind of news, this is what was going on in the disciples' minds. So four things happened, and we're going to look at the first one, was that Jesus got up and washed the disciples' feet. We know that story. But if you go through John chapter 13, Jesus then predicts that one of the 12 is going to deny him, is going to betray him, rather. And there's, a, there's an insider in the group of 12 who's actually going to betray Jesus. And, of course, we know it was Judas Iscariot. And, the, and that shocked the disciples. And then he goes on to tell Peter, you're going to deny me three times that you even know me. And, and that, was, that was shocking. And then he tells the disciples, I'm leaving. And guess what? You can't come with me. And Jesus had been their rock and their security for three years, and all of a sudden the disciples are left just reeling from that night there in the upper room. So um, let's look at John chapter uh, 13 and this familiar story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And uh, Luke 22 gives us a little more context that... What was going on as part of that um, Passover meal celebration? Luke 22.24. This is the night before Jesus goes to the cross. A dispute arose among the disciples as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. (laughs) Jesus is about to go to the cross and the disciples are arguing again about who gets to be the greatest in the kingdom. They've had that discussion many times before. And Jesus has been trying to teach them that that greatness in God's kingdom is not about position. Greatness in God's kingdom is about servanthood. And perhaps he's thinking that that message hasn't quite gotten through, so now I'm going to demonstrate. Maybe they'll get it if I demonstrate what true servanthood looks like. And that's... uh, That's the context here of uh, John chapter 13. Here's what one commentator says about foot washing, just a normal social moray of that day. Of course, dirt roads and sandals and your feet are going to get dirty. Washing the feet of guests was a common courtesy provided by the host, but always performed by a household servant and never by the head of the household. What was not common was for the host to wash the feet of their guests. Jesus, in the midst of that, stands up, takes off his outer garment and puts a towel around his waist and gets some water. And uh, let's just read, uh, read the text here. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
The evening meal was in progress. The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Can you picture this in your mind's eye? You know, here they are at the the Passover meal, which was a a low table, and they're kind of sitting, maybe kind of lounging, and it probably would have been important to wash your feet before the meal, but nobody did that. And now all of a sudden, Jesus gets up, And he starts to wash the feet of the disciples one by one. James, John, Philip, Nathaniel, Matthew, Thomas, Judas. And then he gets to Simon Peter. And Simon Peter objects. Simon, that's our next point in the outline. Simon Peter's objection. And I think Peter was confused. Here's, here's King Jesus and he's acting like a lowly servant. And so when Jesus gets to Peter, to Simon Peter, Peter in verse 6 says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. He explained what he was doing a little bit later. Notice Peter's objection, verse 8. It's it's an adamant objection. No, you will never wash my feet. I'm not going to let you do that, Jesus. You're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus' response is found in the last part of verse 8. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. So what's going on here? As oftentimes in, in Jesus' ministry... Jesus is talking about spiritual truth, and the disciples are thinking about just the physical world. Um, Oftentimes, Jesus spoke in parables, and a lot of times they didn't understand what the parables meant because he's he's using um, everyday life to teach what? Spiritual truth. And so Jesus says to Peter, unless I wash you... You have no part with me. So what's Peter do? Peter does a 180. <laughs> then, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Well, if that's the case, why don't you just give me a bath? And now Jesus explains a little bit the symbolism here, the truth that he's trying to teach. Verse 10, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that is why he said not everyone was clean. So Jesus is illustrating and teaching spiritual truth here. So what does the bath symbolize when he says, when Jesus says, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. That is uh, salvation. That is justification. When you come to faith in Christ, he washes you clean. He removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. Our, our sins are uh, as white as snow. And you only have to do that one time. So the bath represents coming to faith in Christ and justification. 
the foot washing, what does that represent? That represents sanctification. In other words, our position in Christ is in justification is all set, settled and sealed, but our everyday practice, we still sin. And so what do we need to do? We need to have our feet washed. We need to what? First John 1, 9. We need to confess our sin. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When I was growing up in the church and I would hear that verse and read that verse, I, I always got confused. I thought, well, I already confessed my sins to Jesus. I'm saved. Why do I need to confess them again? Because now we're talking about our day-to-day life. We're talking about um, keeping our slate clean. Ongoing fellowship with Jesus is conditioned on the recurrent cleansing of the believer as we confess sin. So if we have unconfessed sin in our life, it's, it's a barrier in our relationship with God. And so he's teaching this truth like you don't need a, new, a whole bath, Peter. You just need your feet washed. Well, the, the rest of the text is the model of servanthood, and Jesus goes on to explain this. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? And they did not. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Now, just a little parenthesis here. There are some uh, churches There are some denominations that make this um, a church practice and a church ordinance. Baptism, the Lord's table, foot washing. I don't know if anybody here has ever been to a foot washing service. A lot of churches and denominations practice that based on this verse, especially on the Thursday before uh, Good Friday, churches will have a Monday Thursday service, and part of that sometimes is a foot washing service. Why are they doing that? They say, well, it's because Jesus told us to. And some of you might be thinking, well, why don't we do that? And so uh, par- part of uh, looking at this scripture is to say, is this, uh, is Jesus talking literally? Is this uh, prescriptive or is this descriptive? There are many verses in the Bible that um we don't take literally. I mean, Jesus says, it's better to cut your right hand off than to offend a child. Was he literally saying we need to cut our right hand off? No, he's making a point. And so some churches interpret this literally and have foot washing services. Um, our thinking in a lot of our churches are that this, this is an example. And Jesus is teaching a principle of what it means to be a servant. In fact, that's what he says in the rest of the text. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who has sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And so Jesus is teaching on servanthood. I wonder if just thought came to my mind if announced like next Sunday as part of our service, um, I'm gonna have you all come to the front row here and I'm gonna I'm gonna wash your feet. About half of you would stay home next Sunday. <laughs> I'm not letting him do that. 
Um, doing that task is humbling, and also being on the receiving end would be very, very humbling. But Jesus is modeling servanthood. All right. Well, let's look at four life lessons, and then we'll uh, wrap this up in about 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, four life lessons from John chapter 13. Here's, here's the first one. We need to always remember that when life seems out of control, God is in control. We need to remember that when our lives, and we'll all go through these seasons where life seems to be spiraling out of control, we need to remember that God is in control. This is what the disciples were facing after Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, and Peter, you're going to deny me, and I'm leaving, and you can't come with me. And they were just like emotionally like reeling. And so no wonder Jesus in John 14 says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. He talks about a person and a place and a promise. I'm going to heaven, I have a place prepared for you, and I'm going to come back. He's trying to comfort them. And so when we go through periods in our life of where, like, what's happening, God, and why are you allowing this to happen? Job loss, financial loss, bad health news, relationship breakup, on and on. When life happens, we need to remember what God's God's in control, isn't he? And that's what the disciples needed to remember. While they were reeling emotionally from all those events, and there was a lot of evil going on too because it says Satan's entered the heart of Judas, those events that seemed out of control were what? God really working out his plan and purpose. This is all part of God's plan. What? For Jesus to go to the cross and die for our sins and rise again. And so uh, all sorts of verses in the scriptures that uh, speak to that. The plan of salvation was being planned out. Before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, uh, Jesus predestined and chose those to come to faith in, in Christ. And Peter's Pentecostal sermon on, on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when he preaches about the crucifixion of Jesus, Acts chapter 2, verse Verses 22 through 24, this is what Peter has to say. Um, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. This is all part of God's plan. Martin Luther said, Famous quote, he said, even the devil is God's devil. And so Satan entering the heart of Judas to betray Jesus was what? Part of God's plan. And so when life seems out of control, always remember that God is still in control. Life lesson number two. We need regular spiritual foot washing. We need regular spiritual foot washing. Uh, in the context of how we describe that, First John chapter one verse verse nine. What did Jesus say? Unless I wash your feet, you have no part of me. And so, when we have known 
sin in our life that we've not dealt with, it hinders our relationship with God. Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. I don't know if you've ever gone through a time period where it feels like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. They very may well be because we've not dealt with some things in our life. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7, it's talking about a husband and wife relationship and what God expects from that and uh, husbands, you know, to, to love and care for your wives, dwell with them according to knowledge so that your prayers won't be hindered. In other words, if your marital relationship isn't right, your, your prayer life is going to be hindered. And so, oh, what's the remedy? It's, it's the first John 1 9 remedy. It's Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and show me and see if there's any wicked way in me. And Lord, uh, show me if there's some sin in my life that I need to, to deal with. The old hymn from 1905 by Charles Tinley, Nothing Between, uh, first stanza, Nothing between my soul and my Savior, not of this world's delusive dream. I have renounced all sinful pleasure. Jesus is mine. There's nothing between. The chorus says, Nothing between my soul and my Savior, so that his blessed face may be seen. Nothing preventing the least of his favor. Keep the way clear. Let nothing between. He's talking about sin. So we need regular spiritual foot washing, times of regularly confessing our sin. And that's why before we observe the Lord's table, which we did last week, it's good to what? Paul says, um, take some inventory. And evaluate your relationship with him. And uh, that's important to do. Uh, on a regular basis. Life lesson number three, greatness in God's economy is defined as servanthood. Greatness in God's economy is defined as servanthood. Our scripture reading this morning when um, the ten heard about that request by uh, James and John's mom, kind of getting an inside track for her boys when the kingdom comes. What did Jesus say? You don't know what you're asking. And he goes on to say, whoever wants to be first in my kingdom, you want to be first, you want to be great, you need to be a servant. Uh, you need to be a slave. That The second word that he uses, the word doulos, the first word is diakonos. You need to be a You want to be great in God's kingdom then? Serve others, and in our world, in our culture, greatness is defined by how many people serve you. In God's economy, greatness is defined by how many people you serve. And so greatness is defined by servanthood. You want to have a great marriage? I'm meeting with a couple tomorrow morning that's going to get married in July. And we'll begin to talk about marriage and various topics before they get married. Want to have a great marriage? Become a servant. It's a husband and wife who are serving one another and serving within the context of marriage. You want to have a great business, a great company? You better have some good, what, customer service, serving customers. You want to have a great church? It's not about size. 
Galatians 5.13 says, serve one another humbly in love. Serving. And so greatness in God's economy is about serving. Last life lesson, life lesson number four. And this comes right out of the, the text there from John chapter 13, verse 17. Notice what Jesus said after he washed the defeat of his disciples and he explained what he was doing there. He said, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you hear them. <laughs> no, he said, you will be blessed if you do them. And so life lesson number four is that blessing comes from not hearing God's word, but blessing comes from what? Putting it into practice. That's James 1, 22 to 25. Don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers. And so we want to experience blessing. Um, begin to serve. Starts in the home and it can broaden out to the community. And one of the great parts of being a part of a church is there's opportunities to serve. And Jesus set the example. Pastor author Ray Pritchard writes, how did Jesus model servanthood? He saw a need and moved to meet it. He didn't wait for an invitation. He took the initiative. He took off his outer garment and got down on his knees. He didn't announce what he was going to do. Now, men, I'm Jesus, and now I'm going to wash your feet. He didn't wait for a thank you, and he didn't receive one. This is what a servant does. So, How can I put servanthood into practice? I already hinted at it that I believe it starts in the home. I think there are areas we can serve in our our community. Um, I love the... What, about a year and a half ago, we did the great gas giveaway in our community. We, we bought $150 gas certificates when gas was high. And we partnered with a station in town, and we worked through um, the family services and tried to target initially those that really had a need, but then uh, we gave it out to others. And, and just um, this is a way to try to encourage you. We have some little tracks in there and a little note from our church. But it also involves um, serving in the church. Opportunities to serve. Awana, beyond Awana, greeters, uh, adult teachers, kids teachers, junior church teachers, musicians, song leaders, text crew, Mowing the lawn, hospitality, church website, cookies, goodies, fellowship time, missions committee, social committee, nominating committee, ladies fellowship ministry, men's fellowship ministry, prayer ministry, and on and on we go. Opportunities to serve. And Jesus says the blessing does not come in just knowing or hearing, but in doing. And so four life lessons. When life spirals out of control, many of us have already been there. If you haven't been there, you will be there. Remember that he's in control and we can trust him. And regular spiritual foot washing. Maybe this afternoon or tonight, set aside 10 or 15 minutes just to get alone by yourself and 
just have some time with God and his word and ask him to show you if there's anything in your life that you need to deal with. And then practice servanthood. If you're in a home with lots of kids or any kids, there's lots of opportunities to do that. Dishes, laundry, vacuuming, trash out, etc., etc., etc. And then remember that the blessing comes not just in hearing, but in doing. Let's uh, let's pray together, shall we, Lord? Thank you for modeling right before you went to the cross. Thank you for modeling servanthood. That you humbled yourself to do a lowly task of washing the stinky, smelly feet of the disciples. Lord, help us to remember that we're never more like you than when we're serving. Whether it be in the home, in a business, in our community, or in the church. So help us to serve. Help us to inventory our lives and make sure there's nothing between. And Lord, may we experience your blessing in our life this week as we seek to serve you by serving others. And Lord, thank you for um, what you were about to do 24 hours after you washed the feet of the disciples. Thank you for the greatest act of love, of sacrificial love, of going to the cross and dying a horrible, excruciating death to pay for our sins. Lord, we thank you for that. We love you for that. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.